Lord, teach thy people to love thy house best of all dwellings, thy scriptures best of all books, thy sacraments best of all gifts, the communion of saints best of all company, and that we may as one family and in one place give thanks and adore thy glory. Help us to keep always thy day, the first of days, holy unto thee, our maker, our resurrection, and our life. God blessed forever. Amen. We are in Revelation chapter 2 today, so if you have your Bibles, please open them up. We're going to go ahead and read through uh, chapter 2, beginning at the first verse, and we're going to read to the seventh verse. So if you would like to follow along, we'll begin. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who have called themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I have a, an image on the screen up there. It's an image of the State of the Union address. I figured if I put Ronald Reagan up there, nobody would be offended. Yeah, you know, you didn't know who you can put up there these days. But it is common practice, as you know, at least once a year for the President of the United States to address the nation and to address a joint session of Congress. And the purpose behind that, of course, is for the President to give uh, an address that sort of explains where the nation is at that particular moment and for the president to set forth his various policies. Uh, this is not just a tradition, it is something that is mandated actually by the U.S. Constitution. Article 2, Section 3 of the U.S. Constitution states that the president, quote, shall from time to time give to the Congress information of the State of the Union and recommend to their consideration such measures as he shall judge necessary and expedient. In other words, the president is supposed to take stock. As the chief executive of the nation, his responsibility is to look at the nation, see where we are growing, where we are strong, see those areas where we are weak, and then set before the nation those policies that he thinks would be best to get us on the right path. Uh, this is an annual tradition, as I said. I'm the first president to deliver a an address before the joint session of Congress was George Washington. And every president, in one manner or another, has done that right down to the present day. I say in one manner or another because it was Thomas Jefferson who decided not to address Congress, but instead to write out his speech and had it sent to Congress to be read. And that became the tradition until Woodrow Wilson broke it. Uh, Woodrow Wilson, at the time of the First World War, addressed personally uh, gave a verbal address before the joint session of Congress, and every president since Woodrow Wilson has continued that tradition. 
but it's a big part of American life, and we all look forward to it to one degree or another. <laughs> well, this whole notion of taking stock, I think, is important. It's an important thing for the nation to do. It's an important thing for an organization to do, for a corporation, for a firm, whatever it may be. And it's also an important thing for the church to do. It's an important thing for us to do as individuals as well, to sometimes stop and take stock in our lives and examine ourselves. In fact, sometimes this is so important that corporations or organizations will sometimes bring in outside forces or sources who can help you to examine. Because we all recognize that it is hard to be honest about ourselves, isn't it? You know, we always see ourselves in a slightly different way than others see ourselves. Self-examination is not an easy thing. And so sometimes it's helpful to have somebody come in from the outside. Well, there is a sense in which that is exactly what we have here, beginning in Revelation chapter 2, and these seven letters to the seven churches that we referred to last week, these seven churches in Asia. What we have is a time of examination. These churches are being examined, they are being tested, they are, seen, uh, they are to be seen where they are prospering and in those areas where they need growth. And in this particular instance, the person who does the examination is not the church themselves, but they bring in, as it were, an outside source. And that outside source is Jesus himself. Now we do that here at St. Philip's from time to time. We have an annual parish meeting, for example, and the rector addresses the congregation. We talk about where we are, where we hope to be going, and I set forth some dreams or visions that we may have for the future. I've sometimes wondered what that meeting would be like if Jesus himself showed up. Uh, I imagine it would be extremely helpful. On the other hand, I also imagine it might be extremely painful as well because the Lord no doubt sees things that we simply do not see. And that's why these seven letters are so important. Incidentally, this is the real reason why I embarked on this study of the book of Revelation. I know everybody else wants to hear all the other stuff. But actually, I embarked on this study of the book of Revelation so that we might look at these seven letters to the seven churches because it's an opportunity for us to take stock in light of what Jesus says to these seven churches. Uh, as I said last week, there are seven churches here that are addressed. These were not the only churches that existed in Asia. We said that there were other churches that existed in the province of Asia, and we asked the question last week, well, why does Jesus only address these seven? And we said that the number seven is symbolic in the book of Revelation. This is the one book that you should approach symbolically rather than literally. Every other book you should approach the text literally unless there's a compelling reason not to. But when it comes to the book of Revelation, it's just the opposite. And so when you see the number seven, that's a number of completion. So these seven churches are listed because they are representative of the church at large. Okay? These seven churches are representative of the church Catholic, the church universal. It's not to suggest that they were the only churches that existed, but they represent the church everywhere. It's interesting to note that Jesus says, listen to what the angel says to the churches. Uh, that is to say that these letters were written to the church in Pergamum, the church in Sardis, the church in Laodicea, Philadelphia, all of those various places. But it's interesting, Jesus didn't say, now... The letter to Ephesus, you Ephesians, listen to. He said, listen to what the angel says to the churches. In other words, the church in Ephesus was to listen to what was being said to the church in Laodicea. 
And the church in Laodicea was to listen to what was being said to the church in Philadelphia, and the church in Philadelphia to what was being said in Pergamum, from what was said in Pergamum to the church in Sardis, and so forth. So that's, that's the way this is supposed to be read. And that's the way we're supposed to read it as well. We are to read these seven letters, and we are to examine ourselves in the light of what Jesus says to all of these churches. Are you with me? All right. So we are to examine our church... St. Philip's, and who we are as the body of Christ here in this place in the light of what Jesus says to these seven churches here in the province of Asia in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. So that's what these letters really are. They are a form of evaluation. They are a time of taking stock. Now one thing becomes very clear when you begin to look at these seven letters, when you begin to look at these evaluations, and that is, and it doesn't take much to realize this, they follow a pattern. They follow a pattern. There are seven elements, not surprising, seven elements, the seven churches. Again, this number of completion you see in the book of Revelation. There are seven elements to each of these letters. First of all, there is a greeting. Greeting normally to the angel in the church in Ephesus or Sardis or Philadelphia or wherever it may be. There's that greeting. Then there is a description of Christ. Christ appears almost right at the beginning. And he appears in a way that is similar to what we saw in the first chapter. We have those descriptors of Jesus as the firstborn of the dead and so forth, the one who sits among the golden lampstands. Jesus appears to each one of these churches in that way. So that's the second element to this letter. Third thing we see is words of praise. Jesus immediately goes into praising these churches, commending them for their good works. He says, I know your deeds, for example. But then there's a fourth thing. There is generally a criticism. He acknowledges their good works, but then he goes on to say, nevertheless, I have this or I hold this against you. So there's a time in which Jesus looks at the good deeds of the churches, but at the same time, he recognizes that they are inadequate or failing in some other areas. Then there's this fifth element, and that is a reminder that he is coming again. And it's in the light of his return in glory that the church is to do the next thing, and that is what? Get to work. There's always an exhortation to get to work and to be about the Lord's business. Why? Because he's coming again. I'm just going to ask you the question, if you knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ was going to return this afternoon at 3 o'clock, would that change the way that you act and behave and function between now and then? Well, that's the whole purpose here. That's what Jesus is saying to these churches, I am coming again, and it's in light of that great event that what? You need to be about my work. And then the final element of this evaluation is that there is always a promise. In the case of the first church, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So those are the ways, or the seven elements that are used to evaluate these seven churches in Revelation, and we will find that there are ways for us to evaluate ourselves. There are a couple of exceptions to this. In the case of the church in Laodicea, there is no praise. And in the case of Philadelphia and Sardis, there is no criticism. So what we're supposed to do is ask ourselves, what kind of a church are we? 
Uh, those of you who have been in the Matthew class, we began to look at the parables of Jesus. And I said that one of the ways that you're supposed to read a parable is that you're supposed to read yourself into the story. That's what you're supposed to do with a parable. As you read through a parable of Jesus, you're supposed to ask yourself, where do I fit into this story? Uh, the classic example that I like to use is the example of the uh, Good Samaritan. You, you all know the story of the Good Samaritan, that this man was going up from Jericho to Jerusalem, Jesus said, and he fell among thieves. Some of you have actually been to the site in the Wadi Kelt, and you've seen that canyon. And it was a place, true, where robbers and bandits used to hide out, and they would attack people. And Jesus tells this story that would have been something that people would have recognized. They would have understood the story very well because they knew the scene. Man coming up from Jericho to Jerusalem, he falls among bandits. He's beaten, left by the side of the road for dead. He's dying, and uh, Jesus says a, a priest comes along and sees the man lying on the side of the road, passes by on the other side. Shortly thereafter, there comes a Levite. The Levite's assisted in the temple worship. He comes along, and he sees the man by the side of the road, and he passes by on the other side. Finally, there comes this Samaritan. Now, you have to understand the Samaritans were the sworn enemies of the Jews. We call this the parable of the good Samaritan. The Jews would have said there's no such thing. It's an oxymoron. There's no good Samaritan. All Samaritans are bad. But Jesus says this Samaritan comes along, sees this man beaten by the side of the road, gets down off of his mount, picks the man up, dresses his wounds, puts him on his own mount, takes him into the city, and pays for his medical expenses. And then Jesus turns around and he asks the, the, the congregation or the people who are staying there, say, now, which one was the neighbor? Now, when you read a story like that, the whole purpose is to ask yourself, who am I in this story? All right, which, which one am I? Which one of these people am I? Now, we like to think, well, I'm the Good Samaritan. Are we really? Or are we the priest that passes by on the other side? Are we the Levite that passes by on the other side? Are we the Samaritan who actually gets off our mountain and helps others? I like to point out that actually who we are is we're the man in the road. We're the fellow in the ditch. We're the one that's been beaten up and bruised and religion can't help us. But there is one who is rejected and despised by his people and he does what? He comes down. And at great expense to himself, what? Dresses our wounds and saves us and makes us whole. But the point is that you're supposed to read yourself into the story you see. That's how you read a parable. Well, we're supposed to read ourselves into these letters and ask ourselves and be honest with ourselves. It does no good if we're not honest with ourselves. But to be honest with ourselves and ask ourselves, what kind of a church are we? How do we measure up? Are you tracking with me? I see these blank faces out there. I'm not entirely sure sometimes. Okay, you're with me. Well, if not, hopefully you'll catch up. So, let's take a look at Jesus' words to the first church. It was to the church in Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The church in Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus was the most important of the seven cities that is mentioned here in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. It was the capital of the province of Asia. It was a large city by ancient standards. Um, some of you have just been to Ephesus recently, just a few months ago. It is a magnificent city even today in ruins, as you saw by that first slide. It was even more impressive in the first century. It was an extraordinary place. And as I said, it was a large city. 
uh, it had an estimated 250,000 inhabitants. Now that's a large city for the ancient world. And uh, they're still doing excavations there, and they're beginning to reevaluate and wonder if the city wasn't even larger than they thought it was. So it was an extensive site. It was a large city. It was a political and commercial city. And that was because it was located very strategically on the Caister River close to the Aegean coast. Uh, the harbor could actually accommodate all of the largest ships of the first century world. So this was a very important place. Because it was commercial, it was also cosmopolitan. It was a great melting place because it was the crossroads of the empire. So lots of things came and went through Ephesus in that day. If you go to Ephesus today, uh, there is no port there. There's no harbor left. And that's because the harbor had a tendency to silt up. And it is silted up now, and eventually all the commerce moved about four miles away. So when you go to Ephesus today, you're a good four miles from the closest water. But in John's day, at the time that these letters were being written, it was a major city, a major commercial port. Uh, as with all Greek and Roman cities, there was a large theater there. Uh, this was the largest theater in the ancient world. It could seat 25,000 people. And some of you who have been to Ephesus, you've actually seen it. It's still there, 25,000 people. But the most dominant feature of the entire city was this great temple that was located outside of the city. It was the temple dedicated to the goddess Artemis or Diana. She was the goddess of the hunt. It was a magnificent building. It was one of the wonders, seven wonders of the ancient world. It was 425 feet long. 220 feet wide, and it was 60 feet high. Now, just to give you perspective, that is four times the size of the Parthenon on the Acropolis. So this is a magnificent building. It was one of the wonders, as I said, of the ancient world, and people came from all over the world to see it and to worship in it. It served simultaneously as the Bank of Asia, the Treasure House, and a sanctuary for prisoners on the run who would go and seek sanctuary in its sacred precincts. It was also a place of cultic prostitution. All of the images that we have of Diana or Artemis is a rather grotesque, multi-breasted figure. It didn't matter that she was the goddess of the hunt. Any kind of temple in the ancient world had some sort of sexual element involved in its religious worship, and this was no exception to that. So it was a place of cultic prostitution. It also supplied a great deal of work for silversmiths in the area who would make these tiny little idols of the goddess and then sell them to people who came through, just the way that you tourists will buy a little memento today. So Ephesus was an extraordinary place. It was wealthy, it was beautiful, and it was corrupt. One of the people who lived there in Ephesus was a famous philosopher by the name of Heraclitus. Heraclitus was known as the weeping philosopher. And when somebody asked him why he was always weeping, he said nobody could live in a place like Ephesus and not weep for its immorality. Now that's saying something in that kind of a city. All right. So that gives you a taste of what Ephesus was like in the first century. Well, it was in to this place, this commercial cosmopolitan and corrupt environment, that a church was planted. It was founded by the Apostle Paul 
on his second missionary journey, but he would come back on his third missionary journey and he would spend an extended period of time there, about three years in Ephesus all told. Now that doesn't seem like a very long time to us. We think to ourselves that three years is just a blip on the screen. But you have to remember that the Apostle Paul was an itinerant. He was like a Billy Graham. Billy Graham would come into a city and he would do a crusade for a week or two, but then he moved on to the next place. He didn't stay there and pastor a church. So Paul was an itinerant. So the fact that he spent three years, and incidentally that is the longest period he spent anywhere during his entire ministry. So Paul spent an extended amount of time here in the church in Ephesus. He would go on to write a letter to the Ephesians. We have it here in the New Testament. We've actually studied it. He wrote it while he was imprisoned in Rome sometime between the years 60 and 63 A.D. A number of very prominent New Testament figures played a role in the life of the church there in Ephesus after Paul moved on. Timothy, who was Paul's young protege, who would go on to be his apostolic heir in the faith, was ordained in this city. And Timothy was eventually appointed as bishop of Ephesus. So Timothy spent time here after Paul was there. Priscilla and Aquila, the husband and wife team who had been so supportive of Paul, spent time in Ephesus, as did Apollos and Tychicus, also mentioned prominently in the New Testament. All of these figures worked there. So this was a church that had a long line of very distinguished pastors from the time of its founding right on down to the time that John arrived there. John arrived there about four years after the church was established, sometime around the year 66 A.D. What that means is that by the time that this revelation comes to John, the church in Ephesus had been in existence for about 40 years. That means, at least by New Testament standards, this is an established church. We've moved on from the first generation of believers to their children, to a second generation of believers. Now we begin to ask the question, this is a remarkable church in an extraordinary place. It's been around, it's established, it's had a lot of distinguished pastors and leaders, ministers. What does Jesus have to say to the church in Ephesus? Well, we said that there is a pattern. He appears first and foremost, and he appears, we said, in one of those chapter 1 descriptions. In this case, he appears as the one holding the seven stars amidst the seven lampstands. Seven stars, it would be hard to understand what all of these things mean except that Jesus explains what they mean. The seven stars represent the seven angels, the guardian angels, and the seven lampstands represent these seven churches. So when Jesus appears to the church in Ephesus, and remember all of these churches are facing persecution. We said that the Greek word is thlipsis, it means pressure. They're facing pressure for the sake of the kingdom. And Jesus appears to them, to the church in Ephesus, holding those seven stars and seated, seated amongst the seven lampstands. What, that means, what it means is that Christ is holding the churches in the palm of His hand. He's holding the church in Ephesus in the palm of His hand. In spite of all that they are going through, He has not forgotten them. So that's what's being said to this church in Ephesus. That's the first thing. Second part of that pattern, we said, was words of praise after the greeting. And that's what He does. Jesus praises this church. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, 
your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who have called themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. First thing that he commends them for is their toil. I know your works. I know your toil. Translate, I know your hard work. And he goes on to say, your perseverance. Now, I think that's very important because many Christians today, I'm just going to go ahead and say it, not pointing anybody out, but just a fact. In general, I think many Christians today, at least in the West, are lazy. We don't work hard. Part of the problem is we live in a culture of leisure. I mean, we, we want our leisure time, don't we? We want to know. It's really interesting when, when you interview millennials for jobs these days, I'm told. Um, I've only got one on my staff, so I don't really know. But, but generally, what they want to know, the first thing they want to know is, how much time off do I get? How much vacation time is allotted to me in this job? Now, I can just tell you, when I first interviewed for my first job years ago, that was the last thing I was asking for. I, I wanted a job. I didn't care if I got vacation. I had bills to pay and so forth. But oftentimes, that's what we want. When you live in an affluent culture, you, the whole purpose of, of working is so what? So you can have leisure time. You want to work so that you have the money to do the things that you really want to do, and work is not one of them generally speaking. Isn't that true? I, I once knew a clergyman. You wouldn't know him, but I once knew a clergyman. He got ordained one week. I was there at his ordination. I had lunch with him a week later, and he said to me, I'm really looking forward to retirement. <laughs> I thought, man, you've really had a week, brother. Aside from the fact that there's no such thing as retirement in the New Testament, he was looking forward to it nevertheless. Well, that's sort of the attitude that we have. Work has become a dirty word. But it wasn't to Jesus. First thing he did is he commended them for their hard work. Listen, if you are looking forward to heaven so that you don't have to work anymore, you are going to be sorely disappointed. Did you know that heaven is not just about sitting out there on the beach? Did you know that, that heaven is a place of work? Let's keep your finger there in Revelation, the last book of the Bible, and turn back to the very first book of the Bible, to the book of Genesis. I just want to show you something that sometimes gets overlooked. It's in Genesis chapter 2. And this is the story of the creation of the Garden of Eden. Now, when you think of the Garden of Eden, what do you think of? Paradise. Who said paradise out there? Okay, well, good. How many of you, when you think of Eden, think, well, paradise? Of course you do. That, that, well, let's put it this way. That's what you're supposed to think of. So God is planting this beautiful garden. It's paradise. And the whole purpose or the whole message of the fall in Genesis chapter 3 is what? Paradise was lost. And the whole message of the New Testament, actually the whole Old Testament through the New Testament to the book of Revelation is about paradise being regained. But it's a picture of paradise. Look at verse 8, chapter 2. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Man is put in paradise. That's wonderful. Well, skip on down to verse 15. 
And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to what? Work it and to keep it. In other words, even in paradise, there's work to be done. It's not about just lying around doing nothing at all. As Christians, we were created for work. Now, of course, this can always be taken to an extreme. There are people that are workaholics. Sometimes you can engage in some work to such a degree that you miss the whole purpose behind it. We're going to get to that in a minute. But you need to understand that work, hard work, is a good thing. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthians, was talking about all the other apostles and so forth. And one of the things that he says is that I worked harder than all the rest. And I think that was probably true of Paul. He'd been through more than anybody else. He was shipwrecked. He was imprisoned. He was danger. Any number of things happened to the Apostle Paul, and ultimately he faced martyrdom. But when he came to the end of his life, he was not sorry for the hard work. He said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now there is stored up for me the crown of life, which the Lord himself will give me on the last day. But until God calls me home, what do I have to do? I have to work. I have to work hard for the kingdom of God. That's the first thing that this church is commended for. It's hard work. It's perseverance. They're pouring themselves out for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of Christ. And he commends them for it. Second thing that he commends them for is the fact that they have tested the false prophets and they have rejected them. I know your works, your toil, your patience, endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who have called themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. This is simply another way of saying that the church in Ephesus valued truth. And they not only valued truth, they were willing to be thought intolerance in the defense of truth. Now that's something to be commended in our day. Why? Because if there is one thing that we are told that is to be highly prized more than anything else, it is tolerance. We are taught that there's no such thing as absolute truth. There's your own individual version of it. You've heard me say before, Oprah Winfrey often says to people, you need to tell your truth. As opposed to you've got your own version of it and I've got my own version of it and all that matters is that you tell your version. That's not a biblical understanding at all. Jesus himself said something very different. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now let me tell you something. In a 21st century context, that sounds pretty intolerant. But it's what Jesus said. And the question is not whether we regard it as intolerant. The question is, is it the case? Well, this was a church that recognized that if they proclaimed that Jesus was Lord, that meant that Caesar was not. People might consider them intolerant, but they were willing to suffer in order to be faithful to the truth. There's a reference here to a heresy that existed. He said that they hated the work of the Nicolaitans. I'm not going to say much about this because we really don't know what this heresy was. The only references to it are here in the book of Revelation. Whatever it was, and there's been a whole lot of speculation, but whatever it was, we're told that the Ephesians hated it. And what that means is that they were clear about what was true, but they were also clear about what was false. It's not enough, you see, to simply proclaim the truth, 
you, also, you not only have to say what is true, you also at the same time have to be clear about what is false. See, sometimes we think as long as I'm clear about what I believe, it doesn't matter. No, you have to be very clear about what is true, but you also have to be very clear about what is false. That's one of the reasons for the creed. Every Sunday we stand and we say the words of the creed. And one of the things we say is we believe in Jesus Christ, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, what? Not made. You see what the authors of the creed were doing? They were being very clear about what they believed, but they were also being very clear about what they did not believe. He is God of God, light of light, very God of very God. He's begotten. He's not made. Because that's what many people were saying, that Jesus Christ was a created being. It's what Jehovah's Witnesses say today. It's an ancient form of a heresy known as Arianism. And so the authors of the creed were very clear about what they did believe. They were also very clear about what they didn't believe. Apparently, the Ephesians were like that. Here's what we believe. And just to be clear, here's what we don't believe. Let me tell you something. Faith and truth are things that have fallen on hard times in our culture because they are sacrificed often on the altar of tolerance. That was not the case with the Ephesians. Here's the third thing that they were to be commended for. They endured hardship and they had not grown weary. I know your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. They were enduring hardship. They were not growing weary. I think they probably remembered Jesus' words that those who persevere to the end will be saved. Now, this is one of the things that the Reformers taught. They taught the perseverance of the saints. It's sometimes referred to as the five points of Reformed theology. You know what the five points of Reformed theology are? Here it is. Here's your test. This is really good. You'll never forget this. It's the word TULIP. It's an acronym. TULIP. First word is T for total. Total what? Total depravity. What is total depravity? It means that there's not a part of us, not an aspect of our being that has not been tainted by sin. Now, it's not utter depravity. That's not to say that we're as bad as we can possibly be. But what it does mean is that there's not an aspect of who we are as human beings that hasn't been touched by sin. Total depravity. You is for what? Unconditional election. We were dead in our trespasses and in our sins, and God did what? He made us alive in Christ Jesus. It is the work of God from stem to stern. L is for what? Limited atonement. What does that mean? It means that God dies and saves. His work is effective for those who have been called. I is for irresistible grace. That is to say, when God begins to work in your life, try as you might, you cannot resist it. C.S. Lewis talked about this in his own conversion. He said, for a time, I thought that I had opened up and let Christ in. He said, but I realized as I look back over the course of my life, God was so working in me that I was brought to a point where I couldn't do anything but. And the final part of Reformed theology, the P in TULIP, is perseverance of the saints. Those whom God has called, he will justify. Those he justifies, he will sanctify. Those he sanctifies, he will glorify. The saints will persevere to the end. And these were people who were persevering to the end. Well, let's ask ourselves the question, are we a people who work hard here at St. Philip's for the sake of the gospel? 
Are we persevering for the sake of the truth? Not being leisurely about this, this is serious business. Have we tested and rejected false prophets? Have we endured hardship and not grown weary? That's a lot to be praised. But we said that there is always an element, there are a few exceptions, but for the most part there's also a criticism that Jesus has for this church, doesn't he? You say, well, my goodness, what could he possibly find to criticize about the church in Ephesus? Well, this, he says in verse 4, but this I hold against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. You've abandoned your first love. Now, there's been some debate among scholars as to what that first love was. Some have suggested that the first love was the love of the brethren. That is to say, love for one another. You know, it's been said of Christians that they pray on their knees on Sunday and on their neighbor every other day of the week. (laughs) So some people might say they'd abandon that love. But I think it becomes very clear when you read through the New Testament and through the book of Revelation, there is only one who has the right to claim first love in your life, and that is Jesus Christ. So what Jesus is saying is they've done all these wonderful things, hard work, perseverance, they fought against heresy, but the problem is they have forgotten their first love. What does that mean, to forget your first love? Well, remember, this is the second generation of Christians. The first generation is getting older. They're beginning to die out. This church is now a new generation coming up. They're still doing the works of their parents, but they're not doing them in the same motivation as their parents did it. In other words, they were doing all the right work, but you can do all the right work for all the wrong reasons. Remember the story of Mary and Martha? Martha was doing good work. She was so concerned to make sure that Jesus and his disciples were fed, and she became very frustrated with her sister Mary, who was just sitting at the Lord's feet. How many of you have ever sympathized with Martha? And she gets so angry that she interrupts Jesus, and she says, tell my sister to come and help me. And do you remember what Jesus said to her? He said, Martha, Martha, you are concerned about many things. But Mary has chosen the better way. He doesn't say Martha's chosen a bad way, but he does make it clear that Mary has chosen a better way. What's the better way? To be seated at Jesus' feet. We can be so busy. And my goodness, we we live busy lives. We we have these cell phones and these devices that are supposed to be time-saving devices. But do they really save us time? No, they just give us an opportunity to be busier than before. You know, the rat on the wheel is really busy. I mean, he is just pedaling like crazy, but he's not going anywhere. It's not a matter of being busy. It's a matter of being productive. These people were doing the work, but they were not doing it for the right reasons, for the right motivations. It may be to keep up appearances, but they weren't necessarily doing it for Jesus. They weren't showing the kind of hospitality to strangers that would please Jesus. Second problem was this. They were probably preaching another Jesus. That's a problem in our day today. They were preaching not the Jesus of the Scriptures necessarily. Oftentimes that's the case for us. 
When we think of Jesus, we think of Jesus who is very tolerant, a Jesus who just wants us to be happy, a Jesus who promises that if we come to him, everything in life is going to be wonderful. Believe me, that's not the Jesus of the Scripture who said, if anyone would seek to follow me, he must first what? Deny himself. Take up his cross. That was an invitation to come and die and follow me. Whoever puts his hand to the prow and looks back is not worthy of me. Let me go and bury my father. I say, let the dead bury their dead. That's a very different Jesus than the one we hear about today, isn't it? They'd forgotten the Jesus of Scripture. And I think that they had probably forgotten the gospel of Jesus. And sometimes we forget the gospel of Jesus as well. What's the gospel of Jesus? Well, there are a number of elements to it. First of all, that mankind has rebelled against God. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but do you know that 85% of Americans, and this includes evangelical Christians, believe that man is basically good? You know, basically, we're, we're, we're good people. We're not perfect, but we're basically good. I want you to understand that is not taught anywhere in Scripture. Um, Fitz Allison, you all know Bishop Allison. Bishop Allison, for years, was a professor at Virginia Theological Seminary, and he was a reader for what were known as the general ordination exams. Now, this is like taking the bar for the, for the lawyer. Uh, clergy go for three years of graduate education. At the end of those three years, they have a week-long series of tests that cover everything that they have learned, every subject, church history, Greek, Hebrew, you name it, everything they have learned for the past three years. And then they have these national readers who come through and read the various articles and things that have been written and grade them as to whether or not you pass or you don't pass. Well, Fitz Allison was one of the graders. And one of the questions was, please explain Jesus' death upon the cross. What did it accomplish? What was it all about? And he's reading these papers, and he's failing everybody that goes through. I mean, nobody gets it right. Nobody gets it right. And he came to one paper, and the man hadn't written hardly anything at all. He'd drawn a picture. And it was a stick picture of a man on a cross, and a stick picture of a man on the ground, and a bubble coming out of the man on the cross's face saying, If I'm all right, and you're all right, what am I doing up here on this cross? <laughs> and Fitz Allison said that was the only person that he ever graded in all the years as a seminary professor that got a straight A. That's the question, isn't it? If I'm all right and you're all right, why is Jesus Christ up there on the cross? The point is that we're not all right. <laughs> That's why he came in here. To what? This is a true saying and worthy of all men to be saved, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If you're not a sinner, you don't need him. We sometimes forget the gospel of Jesus Christ, don't we? We forget the fact that we have rebelled against God. Every single one of us. Listen, if you don't consider yourself a sinner and you don't recognize how you have been affected by sin in every aspect of your life, don't waste your time coming back here next week. Because the church is a hospital for sinners. Here's another aspect of Christ's gospel. Man's inability to reach God. Paul in Ephesians, in the letter to the Ephesians, says 
that we are dead in our trespasses and in our sins. We cannot reach out to God. We are incapable of reaching Him, so He has to do what? He has to come down. We say it every Sunday in the Creed, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven because we cannot reach up to Him. Christ's work of redemption. Jesus Christ came into the world to be a 1928 prayer book. Propitiation for our sins. What does the word propitiation mean? Remember those words, propitiation? What does propitiation mean? It means to turn aside wrath. It's the idea that because of our rebellion, God's wrath, His rightful judgment is coming against us. There's a tidal wave coming against us, and what happens is that Jesus Christ steps between God's righteous judgment and our sin, and He takes it upon Himself. He becomes the propitiation for our sins, and in so doing, turns aside God's wrath. How often do you hear a message like that today in churches? In an age of a prosperity gospel. Christ's claim on our lives. Paul says, you are not your own now. You have been bought with a price. It's my life. I can do as I want. How did Frank Sinatra say? I did it my way. That's the idea. That's what we think. I can do it because it's my life. Paul says, you are not your own. Jesus Christ has paid the price for your sin, and in so doing, He redeemed you. Do you know what the word redeem means? The Greek is latrude. Do you know what it means? It means to buy back. It's the language of a pawn shop. You had been pawned. And Christ comes and He redeems you. And when you redeem something from the pawn shop, what happens? It belongs to you. Paul is saying you belong to Jesus Christ. It's not your life. Here's the final thing. Because it's not your life, you have a responsibility to be obedient and to be obedient means you are to go out and you are to preach the good news to the ends of the earth. Now, when's the last time you heard that? See, that's another gospel than that which is preached in our culture today, my friends. That's what this church was forgetting. It's what the church today is forgetting. We've forgotten our first love. We've adopted a cheap Grace. What's cheap grace? Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it best in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. This is what he said. He said, cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap jacks wares. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, and the consolations of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Cheap grace is preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Well, what's the opposite of cheap grace? Costly grace. What's costly grace? Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it causes us, it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. 
It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and it's grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of His Son. He were bought at a price, and what has cost God so much cannot be cheap to us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon His Son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered Him up for us all. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. That's what the church in Ephesus had forgotten. Here's the question. Have we forgotten it? We may be doing all the hard work. We may be standing for the truth. But are we giving up everything that we have for the sake of Him who gave everything for us? Is Jesus Christ our first love? Well, the question is, what's the remedy for a church if it's not? Well, you have to come back next week and hear what the remedy is. But it's a good question for us to ask ourselves over the course of the next few days. We still may be doing the good works, but have we forgotten our first love? Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this revelation, the revelation of Jesus to John to these churches, and we recognize much in the church of Ephesus that was commendable, but we recognize that there were problems as well. We here at St. Philip's are not a perfect church, but we pray that we may become better people, people who recover our love for your son Jesus, such a love that would burn within us that we would be willing to suffer the loss of all things for the sake of him. Grant us this grace, especially as we prepare for worship this day. For we ask it through Christ our Lord. Amen. I'm going. To, I'm going. Yeah. Oh, no.